Welcome to Podbus Canada. I'm Aaron Woodrick. On today's podcast, we're going to be speaking with Derek Bullen, founder and CEO of SI Systems, one of the largest professional service companies in Canada, and the author of a forthcoming new book entitled In Defense of Wealth, A Modest Rebuttal to the Charge the Rich Are Bad for Society. Now, I've had the privilege of a sneak preview of the book, and I can tell you it's a pretty robust defense of a group of people who make pretty easy political villains these days. So I'm very pleased to welcome Derek to the podcast. Great. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast today. We've got a lot of good things to talk about. Absolutely. So, I mean, the first thing I want to ask you is why did you write this book? And and maybe just, if you can, the elevator pitch about what the book is about. Sure. The book is about the story of what's really happening with the rich in society. The wealthy right now pay far more than their fair share of taxes. And by the way, we're good with that. The top 10% pay most of the taxes in most of the countries in the Western world. Uh, The other thing, as the rich get richer, millions upon millions of people are being brought out of poverty each year. You don't hear that. The wealthy also pay the majority of the money they make to their investors, their employees, the government, other institutions. And wealthy people, when you see wealthy people making money, they're keeping only a fraction of the wealth they create for themselves. Most of it, they're paying out to others. Also in a book, I talk about the CEOs. The CEOs of our largest corporations are not overpaid. They create billions in wealth for everybody else, yet they make less than our top athletes, our top musicians, our top actors. They even make less than our top YouTubers. Lastly, it's very hard work, and it's actually a very rare talent to create this level of wealth that benefits everybody. And so I wanted to talk about it with the context of the facts and and get the real narrative out on, on what it's really like. Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack there, and let's try and do that. Yourself, personally, you you mentioned at the beginning of your book that you're a one percenter. So you're writing this book from the perspective of someone who has built a company and made a lot of money. The first question is, how does it feel to be hated? How do you turn that around and say, you know what, us one percenters are actually really good for society? Well, you'd be surprised how, how you do get the haters. And it can actually be people you know, it can be the media. And I just feel that there's just misunderstanding understanding out there right now. I mean, it's hard to feel empathy for the rich. And, and by the way, we don't want empathy. And uh, but I also think many people have no frame of reference of the tremendous amount of work entrepreneurs and wealth creators do to make money. And uh, and so I think just talking about the, the stats helps. I mean, I remember when the Panama Papers came out, you know, in the press and uh, a friend of mine from elementary school <laughs> just tags me on Facebook and says, hey, you better bring back all your money on shore and, and uh, pay your fair share of taxes. I hope you're not one of these Panama guys. And I was like, you know, his name was Ross. And I said, you know, Ross, all my money's here, by the way. And the top 10% of income earners in Canada, which is anybody making over 90 grand, by the way, I said, we pay for half of all the income taxes. And if you're offended by me being a fellow Canadian citizen and you don't want me in Canada anymore, that's fine. But just know if we all left, you'd have half the roads, half the schools, half the hospitals, half of all the social services that you like, you'd have half of everything because the top 10% of us were paying half of it. The other 90% of you, you're getting a free ride. And I'm not complaining about it, but I thought that's something that you should know. So, you know, it was 
these types of interactions that inspire me. I should really write a book and get this all out on the table. Yeah, and, and you know, as you say, it's not like you're looking for particular sympathy or feel bad for me, I'm a one percenter, but you're actually, I think, from the book, you're making a lot of points about why it's actually good for everyone else. People need to understand that, yeah, you, you can hate me all you want. You say I have more money than I need, but the reality is I'm even with the taxes I'm paying now, I'm, we're paying a lot more proportionally than our freight. And so that you really need to think about that before you start saying, maybe, well, maybe we don't want you around. Yeah, exactly. And even in my own story, so I ran and grew my company from nothing to where I, I sold the majority of it in, in 2018. I sold it for north of 100 million, which was very beneficial. But what nobody understands is I worked hard. A lot of times I was working 120 hours a week. And before I sold it, so I got a one-time payout. I get a payout once and that's at the end. And before I got that payout, I paid out almost $4 billion to my employees and my suppliers along the way. I was paying everybody. And then at the end, there was something for me. And so what people don't understand is that you can't become wealthy without paying 100 or 1,000 times more money to everybody else. And it's true for everybody. Like I'm actually small potatoes compared to these guys in the States like Bezos. But the same thing's true for them. Bezos is making most of the money Amazon makes. He's making it for other people. He's keeping about 10% for himself currently, but 90% goes out into society. So, And I think that's very beneficial. I think that people don't understand that you cannot make money without giving a lot of money away to everybody else first for the services they provide. That's besides the value that you must be creating with a business, right? Obviously, if you're making a service or a product, people must like it if you're doing well. There's societal value more than one way. Do you think, Derek, that the mistake that a lot of people make is that they're focusing, like you say, only on the compensation for the CEO and not considering all the other benefits and maybe also not realizing that what they envision is, well, here's a rich person with a billion or a hundred million. What would be so bad about taking that and sort of dividing it up amongst other people who have less? Are, are they just not realizing that that is a small price to pay. Allowing for there to be rich people like that is a small price to pay to get the thousandfold benefits in other ways, as you say. I would look at it differently. I think wealth creators are a symptom of a healthy society. And a wealth creator could be the person who's running a shop on the corner who has three employees. Uh, a wealth creator could be uh, Elon Musk, you know, who's revolutionizing the transportation industry and right now revolutionizing the space industry. But all of these people are entrepreneurs and, and businessmen and, and ladies, and, and they're all wealth creators in their own right. And wealth is an equal opportunity game too. Like in, in Canada, Two-thirds of the millionaires and billionaires in Canada made their fortune in their own lifetime. Almost half of Canada's millionaires, which is someone with a million dollars in assets, are immigrants that came here and then became a millionaire. So, you know, it's an equal opportunity game and it's just a wealthy people and wealth creators are a symptom of a healthy economy where people are competing and trying to get their product or their service out. And and you're right that it benefits everybody. Like you can travel to a third world country or an emerging market. Your cab driver is going to have a smartphone, going to be connected to internet uh, information everywhere, is going to have modern medicines and 
vaccines and everything. And these things that are created by wealth creators, they eventually end up benefiting the entire global community. Yeah, I mean, we talk about wealth creators, right? Obviously different than employment in that there's there's greater risk involved. It's people who have to sort of stick their neck out in a way. And I think that's a lot of the argument for the reward that comes is that you're taking greater risk. So with greater risk should come greater reward. What do you say to the people who like to attack the idea of inherited wealth? Right. They say, well, sure, it's easy to point to the bootstrapping person who built their business from scratch. But what about all these what about all these rich, lazy heirs, these these people that inherited their money? What are they contributing to society? What do you say to those people? Like I was saying, wealth is an equal opportunity game. So if you look back in 1984, uh, Forbes came out with their Forbes 400 list of richest Americans. And very few of those were self-made. Most of the people in 1984 had inherited their wealth. However, today, like I was saying, 67% of that list, like two-thirds of the richest people in America have made their wealth from scratch in their lifetime. And in Canada, it's the same. Two-thirds of our millionaires are self-made. And as I said, half of our millionaires were immigrants or first-generation Canadians who made it here. And uh, But even if you are that one-third that inherits your money, right? It's very hard to keep. It's hard to make money. It's actually much harder to keep it. And 70% of today's wealthy families, the United States, Mexico, Canada, the UK, wherever, 70% of these wealthy families will not have any of their wealth left by the time their grandchildren are adults. That's the stats. And when people say, oh, it must be nice to have money, like now you're set. No, not really. And, and you know, if it was, lottery winners would keep their wealth for a long time. And if you look at lottery winners, two thirds of them are broke and in debt two years after making millions of dollars. Like it, it actually is very hard to keep money. The world, taxes, expenses, it all conspires to take your money away. So even if you inherited it, it's still work to keep it and you can't keep it in a mattress and you can't keep it in the bank because inflation just erodes it. You actually have to always be putting it back into society, back into making society work. That's the only way to keep it. So either way, you have to be very productive with your money and you have to be very productive in engaging with society if you want to keep it. So you made an interesting point there about how if you go back to the mid 80s, there was a lot more inherited wealth. So in your view, is our economies becoming more competitive and more dynamic because we're seeing less of the richest people inheriting the wealth and more of them actually generating it in their own lifetimes? What you've seen with technology and global trade is that there's now more competition and efficiencies in the market. Like you were speaking about risk and everybody loves to hate on somebody who's hit a good home run, like a Zuckerberg or Bezos or a Musk. But nobody talks about the people who just lost it all on Blockbuster or Yahoo or Compact Computers. And there's so many... There's way more failures than winners, you know, when we talk about the risk side. But I think it's this competitiveness. You've got to risk, you've got to compete. And there's also competitiveness with nations. So like when France implemented a wealth tax back in 1998, they thought this would be great. We're just going to make billions in new tax dollars by taxing the wealthy 1.5% of everything they own every year. Well, all of these super wealthy people in France, well, a lot of them, there was a mass exodus. And at the end, when uh, Macron canceled it in 2007, they gained 
26 billion in new new wealth taxes, but they lost 125 billion a year from wealth creators moving the principal company or their principal residence outside of France. Gerard Depardieu was probably the most famous one who uh, left and he, he actually became a citizen of another country. And so it's this competitiveness, not only inside a market, but competitiveness of nations to attract companies and wealth creators, I think keeps the world humming. It keeps it sharp. It keeps driving these efficiencies. And if you're good, and if you can play the great game of business well, the reward at the end is you get to keep a small portion of the wealth you created for yourself. Your business, obviously, your personal story was a big part of this book. And I, I wonder if you can maybe share, a, sort of summarize a bit about what your business is, how you built it, how it came to be. And then reflecting on that, what advice would you have to your younger self if you knew now what you knew then? Is there anything you would have done differently in building your business or did things just work out well for you? What I remember the most about building my business, because at the beginning, it was just me. There wasn't a lot of money. And I can remember shopping at Safeway with my wife and the ATM card not working. And at the cashier with a lineup, we have to start taking things out of the bag and crediting them until we had a bag of groceries that actually went through the ATM that day and we could take home. It wasn't good times. And not only was there no money, I was working probably 120 hours a week just trying to get it to go. And, you know, eventually it did go. It took about four years, though, to get it going. It's kind of like if you want to be a pro hockey player or a pro NBA and you've got some talent for it, you got to put the time in and you got to make sacrifices. It's like that starting a business. But all along the way, if I could look at my younger self, I would say these things. I would say, number one, the universe is a friendly place. I think that's important to know. Number two, I would say... Problems will crawl into your lap to die of their own accord. And you're just going to have to take them all as they come. Number three, I would say to myself, everything you have learned and everything you have done up until today's date is enough for you to figure out a way forward, whatever comes your way. I think I would say, find a few good people who can be unconditional sponsors for your growth. They'll be good guides. I found in, in growing my business, I found two people, uh, Doug Bowie, who was my business coach for 28 years, and Larry Fickner, who was my business partner for 18 years, and a couple more. These, these were unconditional sponsors. Like whatever issue I had, they came into it. They showed up fully present to help me move forward, and it made all the difference in my journey. I, I think I would say those things to my younger self. I wanted to ask you too about what you sort of see in the Canadian the climate right now for Canadian business. Do you think that most Canadians view business positively? Is there a negative association with business now? What If you were the age now when you started your business, would you be as encouraged to start your business? Like have things changed since the time you started your own business in a, in a better way or a worse way? I think this is true. Whenever you start a business, there's no choir of people saying, go, that's the best idea ever. In fact, Often when you start a business and do something, people generally tell you why it won't work. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of people who will do that. And I think it's up to the person to decide if they want to do the work to persevere and declare what they're doing into the world. And like I said, that person could be someone running a corner grocery store, a flower shop, a consulting company like I am, an, an accounting company, a trucking company, a courier company. 
whatever ever your idea is, business is a great game. It's a compelling game. And because there's competition in it, and because the scoreboard is really whether or not you're making money or losing money, money's like oxygen for business. You, you have to make money to survive. It's a great game and, and it's always going to be hard and it's always going to be worth it. And I really do liken it to pro sports. Like when you talk to people who actually make it into pro sports or make it to the Olympics, in that moment, and if you say, was it worth it? All the work, all the hours, all the time, everything they had to give up to get there, everybody says yes. And I think when you have a successful business, whether you're earning a dollar or whether you're earning a million dollars, it's worth it once you get the business profitable. There's a true joy in that. And today's population, even though our, our government right now is uh, profoundly left of center on their policies, the general population is not. The general population in Canada and the United States is, is fairly well divided. There's a group of about a quarter, a third on the left, a group about a quarter, the third on the right. The rest are moderates. And they welcome business. Business has a function everywhere inside that group. So I think it's a great time in Canada to run a business. I think taxes are a little high. I think there's the Laffer curve that shows that once taxes get above 50%, which they are now. You start to get diminishing income. You start to get, you know, a gray economy and you start to get people doing things to postpone paying taxes. You can't not pay taxes. You'll have to pay it at some time, but people can postpone it. So I think we're taxed a little heavy right now, but it's a good climate for business. That's interesting that you're, you make the distinction sort of between the political class and the general public. And, and you're saying that in your experience, like most people are not hostile to business. So when we, we hear those voices, it, it tends to come from a sort of smaller group and that you don't feel that there's a particular animus towards business in Canadian society today. The animosity against business is really in our universities and in our mainstream media. If you look at Canadian universities, representation of the right, the left, and the moderate is very, very skewed. Canadian universities right now are 4% on the right, 13% moderate, 73% on the left or on the far left. And that's very dangerous. And, and you have authors like Jordan Peterson saying he's giving up his tenure at the University of Toronto because his graduate students do not get considered because their viewpoints are seen as the right of center and in a faculty where the world is 73% left of center, they're not being given equal opportunity. The media is the same. Arizona State and Texas A&M did a survey of financial reporters. You'd think these people would be right of center. These are the people writing the business column and found that it was just like the universities. 4.4% were on the right, 37% moderate, and 58.4% were on the left. So highly biased towards the left. And you can see that like Poverty is a key social issue. It does get better the more wealth creators you have in society. And, and I could show you that in a case study of, of uh, China or, or just the world in general. I've, I've got the stats on that. But since 2010, if you just look at the last decade and a bit, articles in poverty, which is the key issue, in the US and Canada, they've only increased by 26%. However, if you look at articles about wealth inequality, they've increased by 533%. Wealth inequality sells papers. Talking about a real issue and trying to tackle it head on in a meaningful way does not sell papers. So I think this bias to the left in our media and in our current government policy and in our universities, I think it's uh, damaging to society and it gives everybody a very narrow uh, viewpoint that, that isn't actually grounded on the facts. 
it's a very interesting observation on the difference between poverty and inequality, right? Because they're very different things. Dire poverty is obviously a very serious problem. People don't have enough to eat. They don't have a place to live. But inequality is, is, is a different phenomenon because that's just measuring a gap. And what, what really matters there is not the size of the gap, but the person at the bottom, how much do they have? Right. Like the person, the person who doesn't have money, they can't eat because they don't have enough money. It's not because if they have a certain amount of money and their neighbor has three cars, that's not what's causing them harm. Right. That's irrelevant. Right. Yeah, you're right. If we really want to focus on the biggest need, our focus should be on poverty, not on inequality. And yet you're saying that the focus of the media and the intelligentsia seems to be more on inequality rather than poverty. Let's look at two countries. Let's look at China. Let's look at Venezuela. So China, Nixon goes and visits them. And then Chairman Deng Xiaoping comes and visits the United States. Is like, I can't believe how prosperous this capitalist system is. We should try some capitalism. So he opens up these special economic zones where he creates an environment where entrepreneurs and wealth creators can compete and can actually make money. And so there's zero billionaires in, in China when he comes in 1979. And 88% of the population in China are living below the poverty line, right? Like 20 million have just died from famine. And he starts these special economic zones. Today, there's 20, right? Poverty is now less than 2% in China, second largest economy on the planet. And it's because he invited and created a space for wealth creators to operate. Now, let's look at Venezuela. So Venezuela was wealthy. Venezuela has, they're in the top three for oil reserves on the planet very, very wealthy nation. And Chavez gets elected. He says, I'm going to redistribute the wealth. Not unlike the NDP platform. He's like, I don't mind who makes the money. I just don't want them to decide how to spend it. I'll take their money. I'll decide how to spend it. We'll redistribute wealth for everyone. He institutes socialism. Today in Venezuela, 90, 90% of the citizens live below the poverty line. The average Venezuelan has lost 24 pounds due to malnutrition. So you can see the effect of having wealth creators in your society and the effect of not having wealth creators in your society on how many people are below the poverty line. Speaking of personal stories, I can tell you, so my mother's from China, Derek, and I spent some time in my childhood in Hong Kong. And the place we lived in Hong Kong was right across the border from the Chinese mainland, which butted up against one of those special economic zones that you mentioned called Shenzhen. And when I lived there in the early 80s, there was nothing there except swampland. Right. So then I came back to Canada. I went back to visit in my 20s and went back to visit my old neighborhood. Now, instead of the swamp, you had a city with gleaming office towers of about 10 million people. So this is in the space of about 20 years. And it sort of hits you in the face like this is what happens when you introduce market mechanisms allow entrepreneurship to flourish. So it was a very vivid example for me. I wanted to ask you one other thing about those of us who support free enterprise and the idea of competition. We often encounter an argument that goes a little something like this. Competition is good. Free enterprise is good. But the reality is now there's an increasing amount of what we might call cronyism or corporate capture. So you have people or businesses with wealth, they use their money to sort of hire lobbyists and sway governments to rig the rules so that we don't really have competition anymore. We have people basically pulling up the drawbridge. And you hear this a lot in the context of big tech these days, right? That they don't have real competition. Is that a real problem? Is it exaggerated? If it is a problem, is there anything we can do about it? 
it? Or is this mostly a straw man and the problem is not as bad as people say? I think it's mostly a straw man. And, and I'll tell you why. When companies do get too big and they have a true definable monopoly, they do get split up. And, and you saw that with Bell in the United States. You saw that with Rockefeller's oil empire it gets split up. And they start to have this whiff of this with some of these big tech giants like Amazon and Google. And monopolies do exist always, you know, to some degree. Like if you look at companies that have a pipeline, they have a monopoly on that pipeline. If you look at the Canadian banking system, there's five major banks. It's going to always be five major banks. It's a monopoly. There's three major telcos. It's a monopoly. If it starts to gravitate towards more than one, there's always a startup and always a splintering. And if you look at the average lifespan of a company's time on the Standard & Poor's index, it used to be about 16 years. You know, General Motors would have a long ride. General Electric would have a long ride. Now with tech, you see that that lifespan of being dominant, it's not long. It's maybe five or six years. You get some like Amazon or Microsoft that have an extended play, but most are coming and going. Like we forget that Facebook's dominant now for social media with Facebook and Instagram, but MySpace was dominant. It was much bigger in 2012. And now who talks about MySpace? And now Facebook, for the first time, is actually losing subscribers. And we tend to look at these things in a moment and say, this is permanent. Like, look at Airbnb. It is Airbnb was the leader, but now you've got VRBO and several others starting to come in and fragment the market. I think wealth is an equal opportunity game. Business is an equal opportunity game. When you're big, companies will work to lobby to stay in business like the tobacco industry has. But to an extent, reality perseveres. And I think the transparency that's now available on the internet for what's available, I mean, I don't have to buy green tea from Safeway today. I can buy green tea from anywhere on the planet in two minutes now on the internet. And so this transparency and access of information and global trade, I think it keeps everybody honest. There's not only companies competing, there's countries competing for companies. And as long as there's competition, it kind of keeps the game honest, just like sports. And honestly, because there's greater competition, even if companies are trying to protect themselves, it's just harder to do. They're facing competitors from all over the world, whereas before that wasn't the case. So Exactly. When one government, say, acquiesces and says, okay, we'll pass this to give you a competitive advantage, the people don't have to vote for it. You know, it's like when there were two basketball leagues. There was the National and the American Basketball League in the States, and, and the NBA banned dunking. They just said that's an unfair advantage for players that can actually jump and dunk the ball. Well, all the fans went to the other basketball league and then the NBA had to acquiesce and say, okay, yeah, dunking's back in. We're back to being a level playing field. It happens with countries, you know? It happens when people do wealth taxes. Even the United States fooled around with the wealth tax. George Bush Sr. brought in a 10% wealth tax on boats, planes, jewelries, things like that. He thought it was going to generate nine billion a year. And what it actually did, people just stopped buying those items. It decimated the boat manufacturing industry in Maine. It decimated Beechcraft aircraft in Kansas City. And Clinton actually repealed it because it brought in maybe 12 million of extra taxes, but it was devastating tens of thousands of jobs. So I think as long as you have, you know, this comp competitive, natural economy happening in the free market, it self-regulates and self-rights. Even when companies are kind of overstepping their boundaries, you know, with lobbyists, it doesn't last forever. It's just a moment in time. 
I think the free market economy works. I think you framed it well when you said we tend to look at these things as a snapshot in the moment. And just because something is dominant today and seems impenetrable, we really don't know what the future holds. And I remember my hometown is Kitchener-Waterloo in Ontario, and that's the home of BlackBerry. Look what happened to them, right? I mean, they were riding barely 10 years ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I mean, they were an unstoppable force in the smartphone market. And a decade later, just a shadow of what they were. And no one could have predicted that a decade ago. And people back then would have said things like they're too dominant and they're throwing their weight around. And yet look what happened that quickly. And look at TikTok. Nobody said that would be the biggest thing uh, before RIM was Nortel, right? And none of these things are permanent. And if somebody's smart enough to find and navigate their new rivers of cash, you know, as they go forward, good for them. They'll have longevity in their business, you know? So if you look at Microsoft, it was originally DOS, the operating system for all PCs. Then it became Windows. Then it became Office, and then they moved everything up into the cloud, and, and now they have Teams and Office and everything there, but they've always been reinventing and re-navigating the river of cash. They even added gaming. Companies that like that, and, and Amazon, we forget, it wasn't profitable for the first 15 years, and it started out just selling books online, but they keep finding new rivers of cash and you're thinking, oh, okay, so books, electronics, oh, now everything, that's good. But that wasn't where they were thinking. They also provide web services. They're the biggest provider of on-demand computing in the cloud on the planet. They're finding and navigating rivers of cash, you know, as they go forward. So if you're good enough to do that, you'll live long. If you're not, you've got a finite lifespan and then it's somebody else's turn at the top and that's healthy separate the wheat from the chaff in these industries when you see who can adapt and who can't, right? So you, like, you've got Walmart that has managed to sort of up its e-commerce game to battle with Amazon, but you've got other retailers like Sears or uh, remember Eaton's in Canada. I mean, these are companies that could not change with the time. So it just goes to show you, it's not a given that you're big, you'll stay there. If you want to survive, you have to adapt as your competitors uh, force you to. Just by being a big company, you spin off other companies. Like Silicon Valley was started by a transistor company called Fairchild. And all the spinoffs like Intel and AMD were called Fairchildren. And it spun out. I, I lived in Ireland for a while. And Apple had a big campus in Ireland where I was. And so did Logitech. And so many IT firms were spun out of those companies You know, in that area. You, you have this tremendous multiplier effect when you have a big company. So even Amazon, people are like, oh, well, it's Amazon, so now I can't compete. Not true. You could be a small manufacturer of a very unique piece of art, machinery, tool, whatever. And now, because of Amazon, you could sell your product to people all over the globe, right? It's this multiplier effect that is present in all of these businesses. And it's not only from the successful ones, right? I mean, going back to BlackBerry, I remember when they had to lay off such a huge chunk of their workforce, there was such a big concern in Kitchener-Waterloo that this would decimate the economy. But what happened was a lot of former BlackBerry staff started their own startups and created their own ecosystem. So it just goes to show that even the bad news of the giants dying fertilized the ground for future startups. So there is, there's still a good news story that can come out of bad news as well. Yeah, it creates a diaspora. I grew up in Calgary, and Calgary runs on the price of oil. When oil's up, everybody's a genius. When oil's down, it's tough, you know, and it's been in a recession now for about six years. It's just coming out. But we would see that, like Amoco used to be, Amoco Dome used to be the big oil companies, and then when they went bankrupt, all those people went and started up 
new companies. And then you had big companies like Renaissance and that as they would go out of favor, they would break up and then you'd have new oil and gas companies. And you see that diaspora of talent a lot. Like I'm sure a lot of people that worked at Research in Motion are now working at Shopify and other high-tech places. Absolutely. Well, listen, this has been a fantastic chat. Again, remind everybody, it's a book we're talking about, Derek's book, which it's already out now. And I'd like to encourage everyone to check it out. Derek, how can people find your book and buy it? The best place to buy my book is on Amazon. You search in defense of wealth or you search Derek Bullet, a couple of keywords like defense or wealth, and the book will come up and that's the best place to buy it. Kindle version and hardcover are available. Fantastic. Well, that's great. And as I said, I've had a chance to read it and I strongly encourage everyone to check it out. And with that, I'll thank Derek for joining me. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us. And we'll catch you next time on Podbus Canada. Podbus Canada.